Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, I have the pleasure of waking up at 6 a.m. to call a wonderful, wonderful man in Singapore. His name is Visa. You might know him from Twitter as well as many other projects, including his uh, book, his nonfiction book, Friendly Ambitious Nerd, uh, version 1.0, which is a collection of essays about becoming a kinder, bolder, and more curious version of yourself. Um, I don't know Visa personally. We're about to speak our third, fourth, and fifth sentences together, but I have to say he is one of the nicest people I've ever not met, and so I am ecstatic about interviewing him today for Coffin Talk. So, Visa, how are you? Hey, Mike. I'm great. That's such a lovely phrase. One of the nicest people I have not met. That's such a nice, uh, inviting frame. I like. I love it. Awesome. And uh, because pronunciation is not my thing, I didn't say your last name on purpose, so I figured you could just pronounce it for everyone. Uh, I actually enjoy hearing how people pronounce it. So I don't really have like a fixed, you know, everyone should pronounce my name a certain way. But how I say it is uh, Visagan Virasami. Awesome. Well, uh, we have a pretty uh, solid format on the podcast, which is we have one question we know we'll ask at some point, And we have one question we always ask first. Other than that, we just freewheel it. So the very first and only really structured question is, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Nice. So I'm 31. I grew up in Singapore. And generationally, I guess, uh, also technically I'm a millennial, I guess, but I do feel an affinity with the Zoomers. I feel like, um, you know, so I'm, I was very extremely online from a very young age. And I have this sort of theory that the way that Zoomers kind of grow up online is very similar to how a subset of millennials and maybe even people before millennials grew up. So if you know Marina Abramovich, she was born in, she's a performance artist and she was born in like the mid forties. I think she was born in 1946. And she, I, I feel that she's very much, she has like Zoomer vibes. Like it's just like living your life, like it's performance art and being very media conscious and very um, aware of symbols and, and representation and so on. So I, I relate to that. So I kind of feel sometimes like an, like an early onset Zoomer or like an elder Zoomer. But, you know, mostly people just say that I'm a millennial and that's fine. That's great. And that's a great answer. And yeah, I, I'm i either a millennial or I'm like the last, last, last Gen Xer ever. I'm 40. And yet I completely identify with your answer. And actually, the more Zoomers I meet, the more I'm like, oh, talk about like jealousy of another generation. Uh, they just, uh, you know, I guess the theme of today's podcast is going to be nice people. But yeah, they seem really nice. And uh, yeah, so actually, uh, I'm going to get into how I got an interview with you, which is I am scared of the internet, and I'm scared of it actually because I don't think it's full of nice people, and that terrifies me. And so even though I got on Twitter in like pretty much the year it came out, I've never used it, but my best, best friend from college is the polar opposite. He's a programmer, and he loves the internet, and so he followed your account, and then he said, hey, you know, uh, I like your podcast, and I think this guy would be perfect. So I started following you, and I was blown away, man. I was really blown away. Like, what you're doing is just awesome. So I would love it if you would just talk a little bit about not only what you do on the internet, but how you came to start doing that, because you are young. I mean, 31 is very young 
this is a rude thing to say, but to be so nice. <laughs> Usually life has to knock people down for a while. Yeah, I would say that. So before the internet, I was a very bookish nerd. So I kind of, I, I, I think of libraries sometimes as, as my church, sort of. Like I grew up uh, going to the library every week. My mom would bring me and both of my parents, uh, they both read a lot. And, and and neither of them are like very well educated or anything like that. So they run their own business, just industrial waste disposal. So they're not they're not like very literary or intellectual people at a glance, but they both read a lot of books. And I inherited that from them, I think. I you know, there were always books in the house, I was always reading, and I'd always go to the libraries. And I just you know, I feel like there is something that I describe as the library ethos, which is just this this idea that books are great that reading is great, writing is great, right? Like it's this thing that, that we share with other people across space and time. You know, I think uh, Carl Sagan has a quote that's something like, books are proof that humanity is capable of working magic because you read a bunch of symbols that are squiggled on dead trees, right? And you, you instantly are transported into the mind of someone you've never met who might have lived thousands of years ago. And I think if you grow up doing that a lot, or at least in my case, that's how it was. Like if you grow up doing that a lot, you just feel this this kinship and affinity with people that you haven't met. And you know, I was kind of I was kind of startled to to realize that this isn't how everybody feels. You know, so like when I was um, when I first discovered the internet, I was like, oh my god, the internet is basically it's like a super library that I can participate in directly, right? So like when I was a when I was a kid and I was reading books, I'm like, books are great. But I have no idea how I'm going to give back. You know, like I, I read all these books and I feel this, like I've been given this gift. And with library cards, you don't even need to pay. You can just borrow library books for free. And I just felt like I was participating in this kind of, um, this process that I, I received so much from and I wanted to give back to. But I didn't know what it would mean to, you know, I, how do I find a publisher? How do I find like a, an editor, uh, an agent? Like I, I vaguely knew these things, but I didn't know how I'm going to start writing a book. But when I encountered the internet, I was about maybe seven or eight years old. I was like, wow, I can have my own website immediately, right? I can, I can post on forums immediately. And so I, I brought that sort of library ethos with me. And I think I still have it. I think it's just I, I always approach um, writing, reading, con- communications with people. I, I always see it as this sort of literary process. And, and not necessarily like in a, in a snooty way. Like it's just conversational, right? Just having conversations with people. And yeah, I, 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 when I was a teenager, I discovered lo- uh, music in my local music scene. And so I would hang out on like my local music scene forums. And there, yeah, I think I encountered people who didn't quite share the same ethos as me, who uh, I would say have had a more of a, a scarcity mindset or like a combative mindset, or they just didn't share the same sort of uh, very open-hearted let's all share, let's all help each other out kind of values. And that was, that was challenging. That was uh, frustrating in some ways, but you know, I, I, I guess I get it even if I don't like intellectually, I get it even if I don't relate directly. Um, and I guess an, a detail that's relevant here is that for me, um, you know, I, I've joked sometimes that the internet is almost like my mom. <laughs> like I was raised on the internet. I was raised on the internet, sort of. Like, I just spent... Like, so school was horrible for me. Like, if you grew up reading whatever you loved and following your curiosity, and, like, every every day is an adventure, then you go to school, and it's like you're sitting in classrooms, and you're doing homework, and the pace is so slow, and it's just boring. So school felt like hell to me. And so I was very much always 
reading books under the desk at school and then afterwards I would go home and I would rush to my computer and, and check out what my internet friends are up to and, and so on. And yeah, I just, that has always been very obviously valuable to me. It, it just seemed like the future. And I ended up, so I ended up blogging and uh, my first employer, he found me through my blog and he was looking, so it's like a software company and they were looking to do like marketing stuff. So basically I, I was hired to run the blog of a software company and I mean, it got more complicated than that, but, but that was basically that. So it's like, I made a living doing what I loved, which was what I was doing in like my spare time after school. And the adults in my life at the time were not impressed. Like they were like, why are you on the computer? All the, why are you in the computer all the time? Why are you wasting time? You should be studying. You should be doing your homework, which I, yeah, I didn't do much of that. Uh, but yeah, so when I was working, I learned a lot about marketing. I learned a lot about writing, reading, and this is more and more of that. And during that time, I kind of, I kept writing for myself. I kept blogging. I blogged about local politics a bunch. Uh, and I built an audience. And so after like five and a half years or so, I was, you know, I, I, I loved my work. I loved my colleagues and my boss and everything, but I felt like I had drifted quite a bit from doing what I really wanted to do, which is re really going all the way back to my childhood love, which is just writing books and writing just essays, and just doing, just writing whatever I love. So I wanted to give myself a shot at, trying so by, by this point I'm about 28 years old I'm married you know and I, I'm concerned that if I'm not careful next thing I know I would look down and I would look up and I like another five years have passed another seven years have passed and I'm like in my late 30s and I haven't done anything that I want to do so I left my I left my job and I started writing for myself as much as I could publicly and like within a year or so my Twitter kind of blew up I, I, I did some consulting work to pay the bills but then I kind of reached a critical mass where I get to live the life I live now, which is just a childhood dream come true. I didn't expect it to be done to, to be here so quickly. I thought I thought I would have to wait until like maybe my forties or fifties to be able to. So what I describe as my childhood dream is sort of to you know to wake up in the morning and to work on whatever you feel like working on, and that is somehow enough to pay the bills. Like that is kind of my life right now, and you know it's I, I don't exactly live like a like a you know, high, like my material standard of living is not very high. Like my, my house is pretty janky and like, I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I have to be careful with how I spend my money and stuff like that. But you know, th that's fine. Like the fact that I can just, I can take a day off whenever I want. I can, you know, I can pursue my curiosities and I get rewarded for it. Like that is in some ways, like if I had known when I was like 17, that that would be possible for me, I would have been ecstatic. I would have been like, Oh my God, that's, that's, perfect that's a beautiful life and it is and and so yeah here we are that's a great answer and a great um story of how you got there and yeah so many threads that i want to pull at um especially like i think you're at a threshold of where fame meets uh materialism and i think you described it really well which is the next level you have handlers they're pushing you out the door you're traveling a lot your family starts to suffer so you know i've i've heard this story enough times and the people who stay at the rough level you're at, they seem to be the happiest, honestly. This like, and I think that's what the internet is helping us do as a, as a culture is less super superstars and more general stars, and then we can each migrate towards the stars we want to like be inspired by. And that's actually what I'm really enjoying about just hearing you talk is you are clearly an inspirational person, and 
it wasn't easy and you did it by taking chances and risks, but you also have like something from childhood and from youth that you go to. And that to me sounds spiritual. So that's kind of where I pivot in this interview to the the spiritual side, which is you're also known on Twitter for kind of like saying life is meaningful. There's so much meaning and, you know, and, and then people, I don't know if I would, if you would call this, but like they tease and antagonize you or maybe like other people will post you against someone else who's posting about how life is meaningless and like, you know, so I like that you're taking that side and then you're friendly about it. But I would like you to kind of get into this thing you've written a lot about, which I think people need to hear and, and love, which is like how to correspond kindly and spiritually on the internet. Uh, is there anything you could like say to that? Yeah, there's a lot to get into here. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's great. It's great. I think, you know, so spirituality is one of those words that is like, it's very heavy and loaded for a lot of people. So like different people interpret it differently. And um, I wouldn't say that I I grew up particularly religious. Like, so my parents are Hindu. I'm, I'm from Singapore and it's like, you know, there was a church across the street from my house. There's like Buddhist temples, there's mosques. So I'm very used to kind of experiencing many different um, religious backgrounds and beliefs. And even when I was a child, I would say that um, it just all felt like all of the, the religions that I was exposed to as, as ways of thinking and, and being, they all seemed kind of, I'm not sure what's the right phrase to use, but it, it, it almost did, it didn't seem like people took it very seriously. You know, it's almost like a, it's, it's just a, 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 a ritual that you do, I guess, that makes you feel better. And that's, that's not, I don't mean that in a dismissive way. Like it's a part of people's lives, but um, it wasn't, you know, it's not as, uh, well, let me just kind of switch tracks from there. So for, for me, I would say that, that books and libraries are my, like I said earlier that like libraries are like my church, right? Like in that sense, like the sense of profundity and the sense of like grand scale and, you know, um, caring about things that are greater than you that started before you were born that will continue after you're gone like that, that kind of scale and scope like i've i've witnessed people talking about religion in ways that when i was a teenager i found it off-putting because they didn't have that you know it's like they would go to the temple or they would go to the church or whatever but it seemed like you know they just did it because they were raised to to do those things out of habit and, you know, I was looking for that sense of awe and that sense of purpose and meaning. And I didn't see it, you know, embodied in the people around me who are religious. So when I was like 17, 18, I kind of had a phase where I would get into atheism and I described myself as an atheist for a while. And that was, you know, it was, um, it was interesting. Uh, I, I, so I, I used to play in a band with, and one of my bandmates was a Christian. And he had what I what I was looking for, which was that he also had the sense of, of purpose and meaning and like a wider sense of things. And he, it helped me see that um, framing it as either religious or not religious was not, not the right frame for me because I just wanted to be with people, be around people who kind of had that, that bigger sense of life. And he had it. And, you know, we could have really wonderful conversations about, you know, how what does it mean to be a good person? How do we treat others? How do we... How do we organize ourselves as people? And it occurred, it really occurred to me that it didn't matter, you know, what the 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 label on the tin is, right? So I I, I kind of lost interest in describing myself as an atheist because I felt like that that tended to kind of close conversations down and it's like fixated on a certain kind of label. And so nowadays, I guess I kind of describe myself as agnostic, 
Like if someone asks me what are your religious beliefs, I'm like I'm not sure. What what do you say? What do you recommend? You know <laughs> what do you suggest? Like like I, I want to have a conversation about it. I don't want to have like fixed answers. I want to know what your experiences are. I don't want to know what you think. And I try to bring that energy with me. So I mean, so even with the religious things, I remember in my library days as a kid, I was reading about like ancient you know Greek mythologies, Egyptian mythology. So I really had this sense of oh you know people have believed different things throughout history. And clearly, there's something that that you know that resonates with people. And there's some things that change, blah blah blah. So there's all, there's all of that. And then, okay, when we talk about bringing that into correspondence with other people, um, I think the thing I try to do is I I always try to to get at people's experience. So I think I think what happens is. Um, people package their experiences in labels for convenience. So it's convenient to say, "Oh, I'm a liberal. Oh, I'm a conservative. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm feminist. I'm an atheist. I'm whatever." And the problem with that is that different people have different assumptions and connotations that they pack to those labels, and it makes it very difficult to have interesting conversations. And so, what I try to do is I ask people about their experiences and I'm like, you know, where, what's your story? What's your background? What do you care about? You know, what's, what's interesting to you? And yeah, so there I find that it, it really doesn't really seem to matter whether a person defines themselves as religious or not or spiritual or not. Like it's, it's, it's less what they say and more how they say it. Like it's more how do they approach things? You know, what do they treat as meaningful and sacred and reverent? reverent to them and i have things to me that have always been kind of sacred in a sense which is you know just stories you know even movies books um songs right like people if you go on youtube um comment sections for songs for a lot of songs you'll, you'll see like great songs you'll see people saying like this song saved my life you know and it's like i, I believe that's true i believe really music has a way of of resonating with people emotionally and getting them to feel connected with other people. And that's, that's spiritual to me. You know, it's, it's a sense of something beyond uh, language, you know, beyond uh, just kind of transactional conversations. Um, just very, yeah, just, just anything that's kind of beyond these, these um, very narrow transactional uh, perspectives. I think almost, always leads to this this sense of uh, possibility, a sense of awe and surprise and mystery and interestingness. And I think if you can embody those qualities, it doesn't even really matter what exactly you're saying. It, you, you can If you can find ways to connect with people on that, then you end up having something of a spiritual experience, just talking to people. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, again, great answers and I'm, really tracking with you. I try not to interrupt people when I'm interviewing them. So trust me, I'm nodding and, and saying, uh-huh a lot. Um, but I can mute my microphone. Uh, but I loved your answers. And I think now would just definitely be the most appropriate time to ask the only other structured question of our interview, which is uh, not what do you think happens when people die, but what do you imagine happens to you, Visa, when you die? What will happen when you expire? Right. So uh, I've, I've said before something like, you know, um, in we die every time we go to sleep, in a sense. You know, it's like we, we shut off the consciousness, shut off the conscious mind, and and you close your eyes, and then you don't know what happens. And then it just it just so happens that the next day you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, okay, I'm like, it's on again, right? And you, 
you don't really think about the experience of what it's like in between. It's just that there's a continuity from before you go to bed and when you wake up in the morning. And that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, you know, I, 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 I don't think I fear death because it, we die every night, <laughs> in, in, a, in a sense. I don't know if that sounds, if that sounds a bit flippant. I have like many different answers at many different angles and scales so we can, we can approach this multiple ways. But like, um, I really like this answer that I think Keanu Reeves gave Stephen Colbert. And I think both of them are, are people who have dealt with grief. And uh, Colbert asked Keanu, uh, what do you think happens when we die? And he said, uh, the people who love us will miss us. Wow, I love that. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's a very, I, yeah, it's a beautiful frame because it's it's not so much like like about your personal experience of non-existence but just a, a reminder that you know that we are parts of things great, greater than us you know I, I really like the metaphor of of like oceans and waves and, and water and so on so like, like we like you know um i like this idea that a mountain a rainbow you know a wave they are all kind of the same thing just just kind of oper- and a person right a mountain a, a rainbow a wave so a, a rainbow lasts a few a few minutes maybe and a mountain lasts thousands of years a person lasts decades right but they're all in the grand scheme of things all of it is fleeting all of it is like a temporary assemblage right like like so a wave in the ocean is like it, it crests and then it breaks and then it's gone but it's still part of the the, the ocean in a sense it gets reconstituted and I, I try to think about it similarly for ourselves like every every human is a wave in the ocean of humanity and it's uh, uh, there's a quote from somebody where it says just the long habit of living right we just get very used to the idea of being alive that the idea of not being alive can seem scary but i also like you know alan watts has some phrases that's like there's nothing to be afraid of because you won't be around to to feel it you know it's like so there's i think there's, there's a poem that's like the long anesthetic and so it's this it's this uh and this idea that I would rather the poet says something like I would rather go to hell than and, and suffer in the torment of the flame, eternal flames or whatever than like just disappear and be nothing forever. And there's kind of an illusion there where people almost imagine that being dead is like being locked up in a box where you can't see anything and you can't feel anything and you like, like some people have that that sort of scary mental image. But that's not actually true because you won't be there to experience it. <laughs> so it's it's really more of like being asleep and you, you don't know what it's like to be asleep because you're not there, you know? And, and the idea that we are not there seems scary. But then you, you think about it, there are, there are experiences that we have that are wonderful while we are technically conscious that also feel like we are not there. You know, like when you're having a really great conversation and you're not even thinking, you're not thinking about what you're saying, it's just happening. And, you, and uh, I, like, you know, when athletes or musicians, they're in a state of flow and then they, they just they describe when when they're asked about it they describe that oh you know i wasn't thinking i i it just happened like i just did what seemed you know it's like trying to explain it seems futile because it was a state of non-mind sort of and so yeah i i think there is a lot of truth to the idea that um in modernity we have been trained to identify with our kind of ego selves or like our persona or just this this construct this mental construct of, of who we are and the idea of that construct 
kind of uh, dissipating and, and disappearing is, is stressful because we identify with it so much. But, you know, if you can let go of that, then I think there's nothing to worry about. And, you know, it's just, it's all, to say don't think about it seems kind of dismissive. Like if someone's kind of, if someone's kind of stressed and, and we're anxious about dying, I think that is, uh, it's, you know, there's, there's probably a more compassionate way to, to approach it, right? I, I don't want to dismiss anybody's fears and anxieties. And I also think it's very beautiful to think about just the bigger picture and the continuity of, of all things. Like, uh, you know, another thing that happens is that, in again, in contemporary culture, is that everything is so atomized and individualistic that people don't feel that they are part of something bigger and greater. And if you do, I think there's this sense, which, which goes back to Keanu's quotes, right? Like, the people who love us will miss us. And it's like, we are... A we are the the wave contributes to the ocean. The wave is the ocean, right? And and the end of the wave is is just all part of the process. And yeah, I think I I you know it, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I had an existential crisis and I dealt with it and I'm done with it. I'm no longer scared of death. Um, some sometimes when I say that, it feels honest. Like I think it's true that I'm I'm not afraid to die. But uh, you know, I I think it's something. It's it's never quite completely settled, right? It's like uh, it's there, there, there. It it ebbs and flows, and I've I've come to think that there are there are things. So I still I'm I, there are still things that I'm afraid of, right? And uh, I I'm kind of sympathetic to the idea that all fears are sort of downstream of the fear of death, and to some degree, it makes sense for any living thing to be afraid of uh, afraid of death to some degree, right? And I think um, the prospect of of uh, social alienation and ostracization, like that, I've, I've had a few conversations with friends, and they say like they are more afraid of being kind of socially outcast than like dying. And 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 I guess for a lot, of, especially young people, like the the idea of death just feels kind of uh, distant and and um, kind of intellectual. And you might be suddenly faced with it if you have a loved one who's dying or. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, I had an older friend who died mysteriously in his sleep. He was like 27 at the time, I think, and I was like 17. And at the time, you know, it's obviously you, you're sad that your friend is gone and you miss him and, and all that. And But it also kind of made me think like, well, how would I feel if, if tomorrow I'm dead? You know, it's like, it's not so much that the game is over that bothers me, but the sense that, oh... If I have that little time left, there's all this stuff that I wish I had done that I haven't. There's all this stuff that I wish, you know, I had said, or and and all these. It's 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 regret. I think that is in in, in the social domain, like it's regret that is really painful. And you know, so the, the dream is you get you grow really old and then you have no regrets and you feel like you've lived your life to your fullest. And then you can just you can just dissipate peacefully knowing that you know you've done your part you've passed things on to other people and now you can just have a good sleep right basically um there's another there's another aspect to it which is um i guess the health aspect you know so like recently i had uh like a so it's not a, not a health scare with regards to like death like i didn't think i was gonna die but i had like really bad back pain um i I I put I thought I pulled my back from a bad deadlift and that made me feel 
really shitty. I felt like I didn't take care of my body and that like, you know, uh, what if I had just injured my back permanently and the rest of my life I'm going to feel a lot of pain and, and all of those things. But um, luckily, it turns out that it wasn't actually my back. Like, I didn't injure like my, my spine or anything. It's just that I had really stiff hips and hamstrings from sitting all the time. And so, dear listener, there's a good chance your hips and hamstrings are tight and you should really stretch them. Right? It's really, and I don't, I, don't, I don't mean it in like a burdensome obligation sort of way. I think the way we, we pitch a lot of things is just very, you know, we pitch it as like an obligation and it's not. It's really, I, so I started stretching my hips and hamstrings. Like a friend sent me a YouTube video and the moment I realized what was actually going on, I felt like this huge relief and, and uh, I found that the more I stretch, so I've been stretching almost every day for like months now and I find that as I get more limber and flexible, I almost feel more childlike. Like I think um, I was stiff throughout my 20s and I didn't realize it because I was sitting in my chair at work every day, like hours and hours every day. And the idea of stretching to me just sounded like, either it sounds like, oh, you mean like do yoga or something or do, you know, like I can't be bothered with any of that stuff. But just bending down and feeling the tightness in your, in your, in your body um, it, it, at some part, at some point of me, it felt a bit like a betrayal. Like I had betrayed my body by not taking care of it. And I also, there, there's something in that that felt like age, right? Just like at 31, but like I, I felt like uh, just, it was, it felt like foreshadowing for when my body eventually will, you know, despite my best efforts, it'll eventually break down. And yeah, I feel like in doing those stretches, I, I actually was contemplating my mortality again, like, and not just like in you know, an intellectual, oh, what is it like to die? You know, it's more of a, well, this is not going to last, right? Like this body is not going to last. This mind is not going to last. And, and it's just making peace with that. And again, I felt like it didn't trouble me that, oh, one day I'm not going to be able to move. What troubled me was the prospect that already, like throughout my 20s, for example, I didn't travel. I didn't set aside time to have fun i didn't like, i was just busy working all the time and i do not want that for the remainder of my life so it's kind of a very long-winded roundabout way to say it but like so to bring it back to death um i just think of death as just, as just the end of an act i guess or the end of, of like you know we have a limited time run and that itself is, is okay with me what's not okay with me i think is how easy it is to distract ourselves from that fact and then, you know, make decisions and live a life that is hiding from that fact that when the curtains go up sort of or the light comes on and then you just regret. I think that's that's the the worrisome thing. But even then, you know, like uh, I, I think, so I, I feel like if let's say I have, turns out I have two days left and the first day I'm absolutely miserable at, at how much I regret, I do feel like I have, I'm well put enough together at this point that I would then be able to spend the second day being like, all right, all right, okay, that's that. Here's the time we have left. You know, let's, let's say our goodbyes. Let's say our thank yous. You know, let's, let's write a note, whatever. Kind of just make your peace with what you have, right? And um, I, I think we can practice this at smaller scales. Like um, it's, it's, uh, the, the, the book that I'm currently working on, Introspect, is, is about sort of... Um, just going into yourself and and figuring yourself out and thinking about your life and and trying to be trying to come home to yourself and really feel feel your body feel your mind feel a sense of of what's going on and i think there's 
it's we die multiple deaths in our life. You know, it's like we there's the death of childhood, there's the death of adolescence. There's like you know, every few years we go through some kind of transition where like just we can't stay where we are at. Like life is not stasis; life is change, and being able to surf those waves well, right, rather than kind of thrash around and like cling on too tight and 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 struggle with that, I think is is almost it's probably the most important thing. Like to be able to to experience change and and be okay with it. And I think there are infinite opportunities to kind of reflect and practice that. Like whether it's it's stretching your hips or whether it's thinking about your childhood or you know, just looking around, talking to people, like you, you just get a sense of, of how impermanent everything is. There's this great poem. I can't remember who wrote it, but uh, there's a line that's like, um, right now you stand on sacred and holy ground because everything that you have will be gone one day. You know, your looks, your mind, your body, everything. Every, and so um, grief has already transfigured or transmuted your your existence into something that requires heartbreaking gratitude right just that the the impermanence of all things really makes the present moment infinitely precious and yeah so i don't know if that directly answers the question i don't think anyone ever directly answers almost any question unless it's like how old are you on this podcast so i'm loving all your answers so i think as far as your internet celebrity slash just great humanitarian causes you do the one that intrigued me the most and again i'm new to all things visa but i'm a fan um would be that you have this like do things a hundred times and uh one of the reasons you intrigue me is that you put posts up and you offer things that i accidentally did in my 20s and that was one of them is i used to think like you got to do something i would say like a million times to get good at it so not only did you inspire people to do that but i'm curious on the spiritual side do you ever feel like you're just like downloading messages from consciousness. Do you ever feel this higher connection to either an entity that is a part of you, but bigger than you, or maybe just something else like a larger entity, or do you feel like you visa came up with that idea and, and, you know, offered it to us? Oh, I definitely, yeah. There's, there's nothing that I've come up with that's mine. You know, uh, there's, there's, there's this great video on YouTube by Kirby Ferguson. It's called everything is a remix. And that, that video clarify things for me and change my life in the sense that it's really this idea that you know even language when we speak right we are borrowing the work that everybody who has ever spoken before us has contributed to you know it's like we didn't we didn't invent language and we and this is true for all aspects of human culture all thoughts and ideas that we have they are remixes of thoughts and ideas that came before and yeah you know um, so i feel like with the library ethos for example that i'm really I'm just remixing the work of people who came before me. So we are participating in this grand tradition. Like uh, there's a quote, like Nietzsche, it turns out, literally wrote saying people should write like a hundred. If they want to, if you want to become a writer, you should write a hundred drafts of short stories. Like uh, he literally says a hundred. And I didn't know that when I came out with mine. But um, yeah, I keep finding all of these sort of unexpected influences and unexpected uh, parallels with, things that people that people have come up with before me so i would i'm very happy to you know insist that there's no such thing as as like original creation like all creation is all creative work is derivative by definition and that's a good thing you know we we build on what came before and our our task as creative individuals is to seek 
the most interesting and meaningful influences, the things that really move us deepest, and then just kind of represent that to the world. And again, I think it's really beautiful when there are these like millennia old traditions that have been going on and, and we're all just, you know, waves in the ocean in that sense. Yeah. And, um, absolutely. I mean, I'm so on the same page with you. Um, and like I said, we're, we're sort of running out of time. So I think I'm going to kind of let you shape the end of the interview. Cause I usually just give my guests like one chance to kind of speak the floor and, and just have the floor, excuse me, and, you know, speak their mind. So you offer a lot to the world and you're all over the internet and, uh, you know, I'll put good links up and everything for our audience. But, you know, if this is the only time and space someone's going to give you, what is like the one thing you really want to say right now at this moment to humanity? Well, um, I think, okay, so there is, you know, I, I get a lot of like DMs and messages from people asking for like life advice and suggestions and, and you know, they say that they're overwhelmed and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the thing that I recurringly get from people is that they seem to be struggling with this sense of what they're supposed to do. Like they have this idea that they might have inherited from family or friends or broader society, culture, advertising, whatever. There's a sense of I'm supposed to do something. I'm supposed to make a contribution of some kind. I'm supposed to, you know, like make a lot of money and give it away to charity or whatever it is. You know, there's some idea. And I think... And they, they're clearly struggling with it. They're clearly stressed and, and upset and they beat themselves up about it because they can't live up to their own sort of idealized vision of themselves. And I would say that the core of everything that I do and I try to bring to the table, and I wouldn't say I'm perfect at it. You know, I'm, I'm, it's a work in progress for me as well. But like the thing at the core of everything is that you already have some kind of taste within you, inside your heart, something that you want to do, something that makes your eyes light up right and what the world needs if it needs anything at all above all else is it needs people who have come alive right and that means not trying to live up to what other people have said you should do or you know you know and not trying to be like someone else so like there's a chance that someone might listen to this and they think oh i like this visa guy i should try and be more like him um not really you know like be very very careful with that you know i think i think it's good to have inspirations and it's good to have um like people that you enjoy and you want to learn from and stuff like that but the real important thing is that there's something deep within your heart and you can you can feel it from childhood usually i think children know what they want and then life kicks them around and you know they go to school and then they're supposed to sit at their desks or whatever or you know they do something that they want and then they get in trouble for it or they cause someone grief or pain and then they, they shut themselves off. And it really does seem to me like everything is really about trying to get back to the heart of, of what you love and what you, what you feel deep down is, is what you want. And people are, you know, people, people get nervous about this. They, they might say that, you know, like my desires are, are bad or, you know, there's this, this, oh, I don't know what I want anymore. And there's just all that, the complication around that. And yeah, you might not, you might not know what it is immediately. Although usually there are clues, you know, you can ask your friends, you can ask your family, like what kind of, like people have a sense of what kind of person you are. Who were you before you got in your own way? I think it's, it's, it's the question. Is the question to ask, and and that's what the world really needs. I would say, if if you want to think about it in those terms, you don't even need to think about it in those terms. You can just think, you know, what makes what makes what sets my heart on fire, what makes my eyes light up, and it's a tremendous gift to yourself and to the people around you to just live your life with that kind of of joy, and you know, and it it does take courage to kind of um, be willing to listen to yourself and not be 
uh, you know, again, yeah, like it—it's cool to read other people and and listen to other people and and look for resonance and and things that feel right to you. But at the end of the day, it's really it—it's—it's it's something that comes from within yourself. I think I think that is the the thing that I would like everyone to know. Awesome. Visa, that was a great answer after a series of wonderful, amazing, intellectual and philosophical answers. Um, I want to thank you most of all for helping us put another nail in the coffin, which is the goal of this podcast. So um, thank you. And thank you for making time for us. Uh, We're on like opposite ends of the world and talk about the beauty of the internet and technology. We were able to meet today and have this awesome discussion. So uh, as I said to everyone earlier, you'll be able to find all the notes for how to contact Visa. And uh, for those of you listening at home, as always, if you want to help support the podcast, the number one thing you can do is just subscribe the number two thing you can do is rate us on whatever app you're listening to but even if you just want to listen here and there we love you and we love your support so thank you very much for tuning in once again my name is mike oppenheim you have been listening to coffin talk and we will see you soon